fill up. So, um, also, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to do it. Uh, as, as Caleb prayed, I have the, the privilege of teaching our denomination's youth retreat this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I'm preaching four sermons that I've combined into one sermon this morning. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm going to be moving very quickly. I would actually encourage you guys, if there's any application points, any, anything that I said that really landed with you, um, I would encourage you to reach out and let me know. And maybe even thinking about students um, and assist me in thinking and getting into a sixth grader's mind because it is a world that I don't understand. <clears throat> I like the high school guys, sixth and seventh graders. Y'all are weird. But um, I, I need some help, and so I love working with the students. I love uh, the youth group. There's going to be about 250 to 300 students. Um, over the weekend, and uh, I could use your help. And so what I'm doing this morning is doing some groundwork, actually. In a couple of weeks, we are going to do a small mini-sermon series on the church, the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New. What does it look like? How is it connected? And what does it mean to be the church? And so in preparation for that series that is coming, this morning, I am going to teach you the entire Bible. We are going to look at what the entire Bible is about. What is the story of Scripture? And what we're going to do is we're going to follow the contours of the Bible across what many people throughout church history have identified as the story. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Creation, fall, Redemption or, or reconciliation, I'll use both words today, and glory, or as some prefer, consummation, the final chapter, the conclusion. We don't use consummation that much in our vocab, so I went with glory. But what we're going to be looking at this morning, and again, we're going to move quickly, and it's going to be probably like drinking from a fire hydrant, um, and at the youth retreat, I will slow down and take each of those acts, each of those scenes of the true story of the whole world, uh, and do a teaching on each. But today, you're going to get all four very quickly in preparation for what's coming. But we're looking this morning at what we could call the one true story of the whole world. And when it comes to a true story, what that means is it's true whether or not you think it is. It is a true reality. Whether or not you want to believe it or submit to it, it's true. I don't care if you like the last president. I don't care if you like the current president. He's president whether or not you like him or not. It's something that is outside of you that is true. And we are looking at the one true story of the entire world from which all other stories come. Kill the dragon, rescue the girl. It's the story of the Scriptures. Let's look at that now by looking first at Act 1. All of the Scriptures I'll be moving through are inside the insert there, if you open it up. The way we'll move through this is I have four acts of the story, creation, fall, redemption, glory. I have one point per each of those things that I want you to walk away with, and I'll try to make some application as we move very quickly. So the first one, Act 1, is creation. Very simply, what I want you to see from this is that God Almighty made all things, and all things were very good. God Almighty made all things, and all things were very good. This comes from Genesis chapter 1. 
I'm not going to read all of it. You guys have the verses in front of you. If you're joining us online or listening later, I'm going to be reading verses 1, 26 through 28, and verse 31. Let's stand for the reading, the first reading of God's Word. We're going to get a little leg workout today. I'm going to have you stand and sit for each reading of the Word. If you're mad at me, that's okay. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jump down to verse 26. This is now on the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jump down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to have your seat. I'll have you stand three more times as we work through this. But let's just begin. You guys are very familiar with a, a, a Latin phrase, whether or not you know the phrase or not. The phrase is in media res or in media race. In media res means in the middle of the action. It is a storytelling um, move that writers or even filmmakers uh, employ to tell a story. Now what I mean by you know it is because you, you just do. In the middle of the action, you can probably surmise where I'm going with this. Have you ever seen a movie where it just opens and it's a battle scene or whatever and the, the hero or the heroine is just doing what he or she does and it's just all chaos and then the screen goes black three months earlier or one day earlier. The way it started there in the middle of the action is something used by storytellers to get you in, to grip you, and then to zoom out and tell you how we got there. I don't know if you have any movies that come directly to mind, but it is common. What we do here at New City is we rightly emphasize Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As Caleb prayed earlier, the, the cross, Jesus himself, is the very center of human history. If we get anything right, we need to get Jesus right. His life lived in your place, his death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection, and what we looked at last week, his ascension to the Father. That story is the crux of all of human history. Everything stands or falls on Jesus. But that's the middle of the action. How did we get there? How did we get to the place where the perfect Son of God needed to die for you? Where are we going? Where's the story headed? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to pause, not from looking at Jesus. No, no, no. The whole time you're going to see Jesus throughout this entire story. But we're going to zoom out from the center of the story, the climax of the story, Jesus, and look at how we got there. Creation. God Almighty made all things, and all things were good. The first thing I want you to see is that God made all things. 
The text doesn't tell us all the specificities, and there's all kinds of debate on how this happened. Six days? Are these periods of time? Was there evolution involved? Was there not? I'm not answering any of those. There's all kinds of legitimate interpretations, ethical interpretations of Genesis 1. We don't, here's what I want you to know, and students in particular look at me. There is nothing your science teacher in college can tell you that is not compatible with Scripture. No matter where you land, whether it's a literal six-day or periods of time, whether you want a gap theory between verses 2 and 3, whether or not God uses evolution, however you are thinking about this, do not be debunked. Do not believe the lie that what we have learned as our 21st century selves has somehow debunked the story of Scripture. God made all things. How he did those, there's, there's all kinds of debate, and we can have friendly discussions on those. But God made all things. There was nothing, and then there was something, and God is behind it. What this does is it highlights what we might call God's might or his strength, his, his power. What, what, what theologians and Bible nerds call the, 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 the creator-creature distinction. God is not like you, not like me in a lot of ways. We're going to look at what it means to be made in God's image, but in many other ways, you're not like God. He creates, you make. He speaks and galaxies bow beneath his feet. You struggle to get your three-year-old to obey. Me too. My son Isaac is, is six years old, and just to highlight this creator-creature distinction, he, he, he loves Lego. He loves making all things Legos, whether that's him opening a box, and he often tackles the 10 and 12 older sets. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm boasting a little bit my son. He, he opens it up, and he follows the directions to a T, and he just somehow makes the ship. I'm like, how did you do that? But what's even more impressive is when he just gets a little glimpse on the TV of Luke Skywalker's battleship, and from memory goes to his Lego box and creates it. That is, that is pretty cool. And when you think about humanity, our innovations, what we can do, having a computer in my pocket right now. I landed uh, from a, a flight past midnight last night, got in bed about two, so I don't know if any of this is making sense, but I flew from Seattle to here in a few hours. We've done some amazing things as humanity, as creators, as makers, but what my son has never done is spoken a Lego into existence. He's never taken not matter and made a Lego, done it over and over again, and then built something with it. That is what we're getting a glimpse into with Genesis 1. God speaking into nothing and things happening. We just build with Lego. God makes it all, speaks it all. He's so much bigger so much stronger. God made all things. He is creator, we are not. The second thing I want us to see here is that God made all things good. I was going to read to you the first chapter of Sally Lloyd-Jones' The Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a staple in the New City community and a staple in my own household, but for time's sake, I will not read the first chapter to you. But what I am struck by is just throughout that first chapter, if you've read it, it's God speaking to, to the world he's creating. Hello, light. Hello, night. Hello, animals. Hello, land. Hello, sea. I'm not doing this in order, but hello, sun. Hello, moon. Hello, stars. And after each hello, the thing is created, and he says, you're good. You're good. Hello, animals. Hello, man. 
Hello, woman, you are good. This is where the story begins. In Eden, in a perfect garden paradise, things are good. We walked with God. God walked with us. He was our God. We were his people. Adam and Eve in goodness, bliss, peace. That is the creation story. Where do we go from here? Application for us. Before we move on to the next scene, I have two brief comments. The first, what this teaches us is that God is God, we are not. Let me make it a little more personal. God is God, you are not. I am not. So what? All right, well, let's think here. What that means is, I think, we have the privilege, maybe even the responsibility, to get ourselves out of the center of our own universe, where you will put yourself by noon today, where I will put myself tomorrow, right in the middle of my own world. I am my own God. Everything serves me. God is God. You are not. God is God, you are not. That means you can calm down. The God who spoke the world into existence, the one who has galaxies bowing beneath his feet, is the one who befriended you and is upholding everything by the word of his power, even the dust particles that are moving around you right now. Why are you freaking out? Why are we so anxious? Why are we worried about where the money's going to come or where this is going to come or what am I going to do here or what about my future? Where am I going to go to school? God is God, you are not. And he sees you and he knows you. He calls you his friend, but I'm getting ahead. I'm in Acts 3 right now. God is God, you are not. Relax, trust. He's big. The second application for us here is uh, verses 26 through 28, sorry, talking about image. In the image of God, he created Mankind, male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God, and there's so much to be said here. I'll move quickly. What this means is that when you see another person, whether or not they voted Democrat or Republican, whether or not they voted Libertarian, when you see another person, no matter what color their skin is, no matter where they came from, whether or not they're wearing a mask or not, whether or not you like masks or not. When you see another person, regardless of if they're on a meat-only diet or whether or not they eat nothing but vegetables, whether they homeschool or public school, whether they're all into essential oils or not into essential oils, when you see another person, you say that is a man or woman created in the image of God. They deserve dignity and respect. They deserve to be treated with love and kindness, even if they're that person, even if they're the other. Even if you have nothing in common, they were created in the image of God. We should look for it. Even the unbelieving or or non-Christian world out there, when you see beauty, goodness, honor, name it. That is a way in which you're reflecting God, even the God you say doesn't exist, because you were made in his image. And when you think about images, what is the point of an image? Think of like a statue or something. It's to to image the thing. It's not the thing. It's imaging it. We are created in God's image to bear his image and to show him off to the world. 
It's a privilege. Let's seek to look at others, treat them respect, and treat them with dignity because they are image bearers of the living God. Spent way too long on Act 1. We are not in good shape. Let's move to Act 2, the fall. Genesis chapter 3 teaches us this. If there was one thing to take away, it's the, the goodness of God's creation was corrupted through humanity's sinful rebellion. Let's stand, and I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Just briefly as we walk through this, I see a, a temptation, a problem, and a result. The main temptation, a main problem, and a main result of all of this. The first one, the main temptation. What is the main temptation of the serpent in the Garden of Eden? It is this. Did God really say? Did God actually say this? And jumping ahead to application, I just want to pause here and do an aside and tell you that that is the most dangerous temptation that still exists in your life right now. Did God actually say? This is the temptation that's wreaking havoc on sexuality these days. Our desires, our temptations, how we think about our bodies, how we think about sin, how we think about others, how we view the church, the gathered worship of the people of God. I keep going on, but the, the, the temptation is still before you being whispered in your ear and in my ear every day. It's, did God actually say? Did he actually say? The main problem, that's the temptation from without. The problem is that Adam and Eve doubt God. And not in like the doubting in which there's like a genuine wrestling with God. Like, I don't understand this. I'm, I'm kind of struggling. Let me do some work with you, Lord. It was a, it's an actual doubting his goodness, doubting his love, doubting that he cares, disbelieving his word. That is the problem of Adam and Eve. Or to quote Sinclair Ferguson, he's a Presbyterian minister, um, Scottish guy. I love his accent. I wish I could teach with his voice, but... He uh, wrote in a wonderful book called The Whole Christ, 
the, the problem of Genesis 3 is this. It's a lie, and it's a lie that he says is, quote, the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me false father. All hyphenated. The problem here is the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me false father. He's a false father. He's not to be trusted. He's actually, he's not out for my goodness. He's holding something back. He's not for me. He's keeping something from me. He's not to be trusted. And it's the same thing we're wrestling with. I'm not sure he really meant that when he clearly said that. I'm not sure we can actually think about this or that the way God actually said this. Did he actually say this? It's the main problem of Adam and Eve. It's the problem of our own hearts. Not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. But the main result, what happened because of the fall? What's going on here? Well, loss, sin, death, brokenness. This is the crack. The image of God that we just talked about, seeing in one another, being made in the image of God, has now been marred, broken, cracked, not utterly destroyed. My application point on seeing others as image bearers of God still holds true, but it's hard now because we're not pretty images anymore. We're cracked. We're broken. We're limping along. Or to use the biblical word shalom, probably hear that a lot. It's translated in your English Bible likely as peace, but it's far more expansive than that. It's wholesale flourishing, flourishing in all of life, psychological, physical, cultural, emotional, relational, spiritual, flourishing has now been disrupted. Shalom broken. So, what's wrong with the world? You've probably heard the story of famous G.K. Chesterton upon hearing a, a, a news article asking that same question. What is the problem with the world? And he writes back, I am. What is the problem with the world? You are. I am. It's not temptation from without. You're the problem. I'm the problem. People are the problem. Sinners are the problem. The Bible would say that we are sinners and sinful because of the story we just read. Sinners and sinful. They are different. What I mean by that is sinners. That is, we do sinful things. We act and we think wrongly. I never taught any of my children the two-letter dreaded word, no. It's like they come out with it. They're born into this world, which leads me to the, the second thing. We're not just sinners. We are sinful. We are bent toward wickedness, bent toward evil now because of the decision of our first parents. We are born into a sinful world. My daughter is now five. Her name is Amelia. She uh, loves dresses and all things princesses. It's not uncommon for her to be in a bright princess dress and snow boots because those things go together. Um, I think she's Elsa this morning. But what I'm struck by is that in the, the princess world of dresses, and she loves art, she loves coloring, uh, she often works with glitter. This stuff is terrible. You get a little bit of glitter on you, it does not leave you, ever. It's always there, whether it's on your skin or on your clothes. She often comes out, runs, runs out when I get home from my work day, and even this 
past week before I left for a trip, she gave me a hug, and I looked down, and my pants were like covered in glitter, and it was with me the rest of the day. It went through the washer, glitter still on. Because of the fall, you're a part of the problem, I'm a part of the problem, we are what's wrong with the world, because sin is like glitter. It's on and in and around everything we do. We don't just say and think and, and do sinful things. All that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think, has some glitter in it. Even as I'm standing here doing my best to humbly preach the Word of God to you and get your eyes and your gaze averted from me and to Jesus, guess what? I want you to think I'm smart and funny and a great preacher. Even the righteous deed of preaching the holy Word of God, I'm standing here stained and tainted with sin. Your righteous deeds even have sin woven into them because we are sinful, born into this. This is our destiny unless someone acts from outside to make us new and to make us different. Two little brief comments of application before we move on to the third scene. Well, I think this means because we're sinners and we're sinful, the story's going to get better, first of all, where this is kind of depressing right now. I think what this means is that our feelings, our perceptions, our emotions, ought not be trusted by default. No matter your Myers-Briggs, no matter your Enneagram, you shouldn't be trusted. Your feelings, your emotions, your perceptions of how things are, are, is probably wrong. Likely wrong. Or at least just a half-truth. And yet, if you're like me, you go around making all the decisions for your family, for yourself, me, myself, and I. And if the fall is true and the effects of the fall is true, I shouldn't be trusted. The way you're thinking is probably off. The way you're feeling, error. The way you think and your, your emotions, probably stained with sin. What we ought to do is get other people in our lives. This is where community comes in. Fresh eyes, fresh insight, whether it's our elders or your community group, people around you that give fresh eyes on your life, help me. Because you can see things I can't see. I'm not by default going to trust the way I feel, the way I perceive, because it too is stained with glitter, covered in sin. But third, or that was the first one, second application point, and finally, and this is maybe the most troublesome, the fall has altered the way we see God. If you've ever had a cool thought about God, not cool like I'm cool, cool cold, or an apathetic feeling towards God or the one true story of the whole world, that is wicked. I'm preaching, this is to my own heart, that is evil. The most beautiful being in all of the universe, the most glorious God of all, invites you to be a friend, tells you the one true story of the whole world, and we're like, eh. I'd rather get some Netflix on. Take it or leave it. Or if you're like me, it's up and down. Like, man, God is so good. And then, uh, apathetic. I'm not sure I'll get to my Bible reading today. That is evil. 
not missing your Bible reading, but having cool thoughts, apathetic thoughts toward God, that is because of the fall. If we saw God for who He really was in all of His beauty and worth and majesty, we'd move mountains to spend just a moment with God. And He invites us every day, come to me. Come to me. And my own heart is cool toward God. Even in my sin, maybe in my suffering, I did it again. I fell short again. What's my first thought? I got to clean myself up before I go back to the Lord. That is an effect of the fall. We wrongly see God, and the, the beauty of gathered worship, the beauty of your daily Bible reading, the beauty of community group is to help you reorient and get a proper view or a, a more proper view of who God is, what He's done for you, and what He invites you into. So, before we go to scene three, I put another verse right there. Do you see before redemption, which is act three? I put in there verse 15 of Genesis chapter three, because this is where act three begins. My text for redemption, my text for reconciliation, which is act three of the one true story of the whole world, actually doesn't begin in the New Testament where we're going to go. It doesn't actually begin with Jesus the center of the universe, it begins right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and traces throughout the whole Bible. Redemption starts in, on page 3 and goes through Jesus, the climax, the mountaintop, and then from there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is God pronouncing judgment on the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve with, did God really say? He says this, God does, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. He will give you a fatal death blow, but you, serpent, will bruise his heel. You're going to cause pain and suffering to the seed of the woman. Fulfilled in Jesus, act three of the story. Let's read, stand, and read I will read 2 Corinthians. We're going to fast forward to the New Testament here, but again, I can give you an idea here. I just covered Genesis 3, page 3. We're going to 2 Corinthians, which is way back here. This big chunk in the middle is redemption. It's reconciliation. It's God pursuing a people. But let's read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. We're going to have to move. Listen to God's word. Here we go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Act three of the story is what I called redemption. I did work on this uh, a couple weeks ago. I might change it to reconciliation just because our text uses that word more specifically, but they're covering the same thing. Reconciliation. The one thing I want us to get here is this sentence. It's kind of a Pauline sentence. It's long. 
Through the substitutionary death and triumphant resurrection of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself, begun new creation, and made us sons and daughters. It began on page 3, though, Genesis 3.15. It's just finding its fulfillment, its climax here. And so, just very briefly, I'm going to move quickly through this. It sounds terrible to move quickly through Jesus, but we've got to move. So to move, I'm going to give you five points. The what, the why, the who, the how, and so what. The what. Reconciliation. What is this meaning? What do we just learn? What do we just read here? Reconciliation means the bringing together of two parties that were estranged. More specifically, it's the bringing together of two parties who were at odds and enemies before. Christ has brought together two enemy parties, God and you. God and us, I should put it in the plural. That is the what? Reconciliation. Well, the why? Why do we need reconciliation? Well, the act two of the story, which we just read about. The fall and all of its consequences. I'd point you to Romans 5, verses 9 through 11. Maybe read that this afternoon. It gives you a little bit more insight on the why. Why do we need it? Because we were enemies at war with God. We were, at in it, we were enemies at war with God. Or more scary, God was at war against us because of us. And Romans 5 sheds light specifically on the reality that because of our sin, we were under the wrath of God. Why do we need reconciliation? I think that's enough. The enemies of God, we were at war with him under his wrath, deserving hell. But God... So that leads me to the third point, the who, or the, the cause, or the initiator here. Look again at verses 21, and then I'm going to look at verse 18. 21, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus the Son, the Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Who did it? God. You didn't do it, I didn't do it, we didn't do it, we didn't deserve it, we weren't the first move, we didn't initiate, God did. It couldn't be more clear than in verse 18. Look at this. All this is from God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is the very last prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we're learning here. That's the who. We didn't need a, a, a life preserver. We needed resurrection. We didn't need a little slight differing of, of a of perception. We didn't need just a, a little nudge in the right direction. We needed a heart transplant because we were dead. God moved. How? Number four, the, the point is substitution. Verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was put on a criminal's cross and treated the way that you deserve to be treated, that I deserve to be treated. Our sin that you've committed, that you're going to commit, maybe you're committing right now, and the sin that you will commit all put on Jesus, and Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and paid the penalty for sin so that your verdict and my verdict now and forever is not guilty, forgiven free, and restored. Substitution. So what? This is where I would love to spend more time, but we can't. What, what, what does all this do? Our passage shows us New creation has begun. What was corrupted in Genesis 3 because of the fall 
has begun again afresh, anew in Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead. New creation has begun in Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. But by faith now, we're united to Jesus. We're made the righteousness of God. There is, therefore, Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. By faith, you, I, are in Christ. Like a seed in a fruit, we are in Jesus. What is true of Him is true of me. What is true of Jesus is true of you. Righteous, Son, resurrected, in God's presence, eternal life, life everlasting, fullness of joy, obedient. That is you. That is me, even though we're not. Jesus was in our place. And lastly, we are sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters, you are a prince or a princess of the king who has sun, moon, and stars worshiping him, bowing before him. That's our friend. That is our God. So my plea is the same plea of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 20, be reconciled to God. There is no other way. Last and final scene, and quickly, this will lead us to the table well. Let's stand one more time for the reading of God's Word from one of the most glorious paragraphs, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, Act 4 of the one true story of the whole world. Here we go. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. This is the one I'm most excited to preach. This is the, the best one, maybe, arguably. And uh, I'm going to give it two minutes to you. I'm, a, I'm sorry. This is glory. This is consummation. This is where the story is headed. New creation that was begun at the cross, realized in time when Jesus returns triumphantly one day. Not as the lamb who came at Christmas to be slaughtered, but the lion who is returning as the white rider of Revelation 19 to judge the nations and to have all knees bend at his will, coming back triumphantly as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, I want to read so much. I can't. What we're seeing here, Revelation 21, new creation, glory, where all things are headed, has broken in. You hear this a lot from the pulpit. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but we live in a period of already not yet. 
Revelation 21 is started in Jesus, but not yet realized. Revelation 21 has started at the cross in Jesus. And Revelation has started in your own life, in your own heart, at what we call conversion. Or we might just say, when you saw and beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and said, I want him, I'm following that man. Jesus is more glorious and beautiful than anything I can imagine. I can't even see him yet, but I follow Jesus. Revelation 21 has begun, but not yet. This is where history is headed. This is where all things are going. So what? Well, here lays the reason I think many people, maybe many Christians, maybe even you in this room right now, struggle with satisfaction and discontentment. You weren't made for this world. To quote C.S. Lewis, who famously said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And yet I spend so much of my day trying to find satisfaction, trying to find contentment in a world I wasn't made for. Trying to, to fill that God-sized hole in my heart and my soul with created stuff. Guys, John, the Gospel of John, Jesus himself said that we are not of this world. He is not of this world. To use the words of Paul, we are citizens of a different country. The book of Hebrews tells the story of the early saints who lost their lives because of Jesus. And he's, the, the writer says the world wasn't even worthy of them. Why did they do such amazing things? Why did they go to their death? Why were... Why did they move mountains by their faith? Because they were looking toward a new city, a different city, the one we just read about. So what I mean by this is don't put the crushing weight of your satisfaction on other people or other things. Your marriage, your career, your success, your finances, your status or popularity, your kids, your friend group, those things you will crush, literally crush, under the weight of trying to satisfy only the thing that God can. Allow me to close with one illustration and then I will take us to the table. The reason the New Testament uses this language, what we call eschatological language, if you want to drop a cool word at your dinner party this week, the reason the Bible talks about the future, and you can check me on this, I spent a lot of time and I, I checked it already, so if you want to, I'll save you time. The reason the New Testament so often speaks about the world to come is always in the context of the New Testament writers providing present hope. Right now, be encouraged. How? Let me tell you. Look where we're headed. Future hope sustaining us now in the present. Whether in suffering or pain or trial or apathy or cool thoughts about the Lord or sleepless nights and when you're, when you're Woken up by your own thoughts of inadequacy, whether the, the clouds of depression are pressing in on you or wherever you're at, 
The New Testament gives you that future hope for now. The new city is for now. The Return of the King is the third book in J.R.R. Tolkien's famous work. You know the story, Frodo and Sam, the Hobbit heroes, are in a very grim spot. And there's just this, this very quick story, this quick phrase that is brief and yet so powerful. Frodo and Sam are in the terrible land of Mordor, having just escaped the Orc Tower. Food's low, water is out, and they are still a long way from Mount Doom where they have to get the evil ring. The one ring to rule them all and destroy it. Sam's on watch, Frodo's asleep. Suddenly the dark clouds of Mordor, just for a brief moment, open, ever so slightly, and Sam glimpses a single bright star shining, shimmering in the sky. To which Tolkien writes this. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of that forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was light and beauty forever beyond its reach. The shadows, the darkness, the clouds that are in your life, if we can just get a little glimpse of the star on the other side of the darkness, like a pillar piercing into our heart, we would recognize that these shadows are only passing. To use my good friend, the Apostle Paul, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that is what the communion table reminds us of. Like that star shimmering and piercing through the darkness to Sam and Frodo, so the communion meal is that light that pierces and shines through the shadows of your life, pointing to the meal that is ahead. The marriage supper of the Lamb where our faith will be turned into sight and we feast with our God and friend who reconciled us to himself has begun a reverse of the fall and will bring us into new creation. As we go to the communion table, this is a meal for Christians. Whether faith of a babe or mature in walking with the Lord forever, those who can examine themselves and say, I trust in Jesus. If you're not a believer, hold off. If you're in conflict with another believer that you have not gone out of your way to try to reconcile, hold off. If you are in willful and unrepentant sin, hold off. The Scriptures would tell you you're drinking judgment upon yourself if you come. I still would encourage you to come to a table and receive a blessing. Just let the, let the people there know that you would like a quick prayer of blessing and they'll pray over you briefly. Come through the line and return without cup and bread. We have four corners, four, four tables in each uh, corner of the room. The bread and on the tray there is red wine, white grape juice. So make your way to one of those in just a moment after I pray. Um, leaders, deacons, elders, those other leaders in, in New City, uh, if we have two at each table, you can sneakily move as I pray. That's the, the secret. Um, and then I will dismiss you to receive your elements. Bring them back to your seat. I'll read the words of institution. We'll partake together. The meal that points us back to reconciliation in Christ 
and points us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray for us. Those serving can come forward as I pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the true story of the whole world. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Lord, help us walk with you. Help us know that obedience is possible because of your work, Jesus. Be with us now as we hear another sermon, not to our ears, but to our taste and our touch and our lips and our smell as we preach the gospel to ourselves and look forward to the meal to come with you in glory. Go before us. I pray all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. When you're ready and prepared, I encourage you to come forward, grab the elements, and return to your seat.